you know, there's this old, um, there's this, I think, it, I think it's from the classical period of India, what's called the four reliances. And one of the, the second reliances say, says, rely on the meaning, not the literal word. And so it, it points Buddhists who are trying to understand text toward an exploration of figuring out the meaning. And one of the, um, for me, one of the interesting ways of feeling through meaning is, well, what are all those different translations trying to do? Like, they're all kind of pointing, what is evil? How's the not doing evil wrapped up in the moral codes? How's the good wrapped up in enlightenment? So, this first one is kind of about restraint. Don't do these things. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't misuse sexuality. Um, and it's, um, it's almost like what all of us need like when we're children, when we're not very mature ethically. The first thing that has to happen is people have to tell us what not to do. Because, you know, when I was a little boy, I just did whatever came to my mind. And somebody said, don't do those things. You see what happens when you do those things. And so this, um, this first invitation that there are requests for restraint. Restraint of our actions. And in some ways, in our, in our thoughts too. Because for Buddhists, thought is a moral action. So, first thing is looking at that. The second piece that connects good to, to enlightenment and awakening, and, and I'm not, this interpretation is just what's coming up in me, Don't, it's not gospel. Um, for me, kind of connects good to prajna. Or this sense that um, over time, when we're practicing, and I'm going to talk about these three a little bit in a kind of linear way, but please don't take them as linear. They're certainly not linear. Um, when we've restrained our activity long enough that we're not just running around doing whatever it is, that our egoic grasping wants to do in that moment. Things, especially if zazen's happening at the same time, things start to quiet down. The Buddha was really clear that, that a moral mind and moral activity was necessary for the mind to quiet. And reverse, that a quieting mind supports more clarity around moral behavior more skillful behavior. So as we're looking at this restraint and it kind of quiets down, something else, and, and that moral restraint often is, is the main thing involved there is reasoning and paying attention to what's going on. Like it's not nice to belittle somebody. Please don't belittle somebody. And then we can reason through that, and we can also um, pay attention to what actually happens for another person. 
but we may or may not yet, um, maybe we feel it, maybe we don't feel it. But, you know, when the, when the Buddha talked about the kind of progression of our wisdom, the first was what we, the knowing that comes from the senses, from seeing, from hearing, and so on. And then there's this process of calming the mind. And in the process of calming the mind, a different kind of knowing arises, which is what often is referred to as prajna. This bodily knowing that is integrated. And I, I feel it's important to say over and over and over again that Buddhist ethics is a bodily ethics. That Buddhist ethics, even the reasoning aspect, it's not throwing out reason, but even reasoning is embodied, even reasoning is integrated. The whole of the body reasons. So the, um, there is this, in the second pure precept, there is this maybe an encouragement of a different ethical sphere that complements the first one mentioned, a different ethical sphere that is about an awakened body in context, feeling other bodies, and understanding in relationality what is good. What is good in this moment? What is the thing that is feeling connected? What is the thing that is supporting the life that I'm engaging with? Other bodies, animals, people, sky, spiders, everything that's going on. And so then what arises from the awakening of the body over time is a sense of being a body, heart, and mind that is in a tissue with everything else. And it isn't so much then that you need, although sometimes you do, because you forget the tissue. We move fast. We get caught up in things. But when that interwoven tissue that is all of us is present to our bodily wisdom, when, it's pre when prajna is coming from that, then we don't want to tear it. It is that which is creating the wisdom of our ethical engagement at that time. Sometimes we forget and we need the don't do evil side. Follow these precepts. Our precepts have built in, in some ways, both of these, right? We recognize the contextuality of it. We recognize the impossibility of upholding them. To say not kill if we're not deciding what's good life and what's bad life, if we're not involved in that process, then it's impossible not to kill. And so we're always feeling into the contextual reality, the interfelt world of what it is to be ethical. And then when that, those two aspects come together, where the manifestation of the precepts or the upholding of the precepts are an expression of the body and heart's inter, awake interwovenness with everything, then we, we live for the benefit of all beings. 
Living for the benefit of all beings can be an aspiration. It remains an aspiration. If we're not experiencing that interwoven life in a given moment, then that aspiration is one that is not unlike upholding the precepts. I, am, I have the intention of living for the benefit of all beings. If it's coming from interwoven prajna, then it is the way we are. Because we're not confused about being individuated. The fact that we are discreet, that we are, um, doesn't mean that we're separate. The fact that there's particularities about us, we recognize those particularities do not equal separation. Particularities are integrated with everything. This is what is so, I feel we talk about it a lot, what is so spectacular and helpful about the Indra's net metaphor of being a reflective jewel in an, in an infinite network because it, it actually reconciles at least in my understanding of it, it reconciles the relative and the absolute because we're both particular in that situation and we are everything. Our deep interconnection does not destroy our particularity. Our particularity cannot separate us from our deep interconnection. Our particularity has to be honored. The wounds of it, the joys of it, the history of it, everything that's happened has to be honored, has to be cared for in the particular. But from the heart of knowing you are me. I can care for you in particularity and know that we have different histories, different wounds, different everything, maybe. And not get confused that that means that you are something cut off from me because there's so much difference in particularity. If we get confused about either side of this, we do harm. If we think that our particulars divide us in some absolute way, we will harm one another because why be kind to you? If we mush everything into oneness and we don't recognize that there are different forms of suffering and different forms of ways of being oppressed and hardship and so on, if we don't recognize that, then we will just pave over the care that's actually necessary to take care of our world and one another. So there is a... Um, so then we move into this live for the benefit of all beings. We have to live for the benefit of all beings from this connection and this particularity. And... Um, And sometimes that comes from a natural seeing, and sometimes it comes from a determined place of not knowing how to do that. 
I am determined to live for the benefit of all beings, but I do not know how to do that right now because I'm really upset about something. It's very painful. Um, recently, a Dharma teacher that visited Union made the comment of um, Sister Chan Kong. She made the comment that compassion is like the sun. We are never going to reach its full expression, but we need to turn to it every day to realize that's where everything's coming from. I thought that was really good and very kind. Everything is coming from the sun. Everything we are is coming from the sun, and I am not going to get there. I am not going to manifest compassion fully, moment to moment to moment. I can only make it an aspiration. So then this weaves together our, our ethical life as something that cannot be done alone. Right? It has to be accomplished in conversation with each other. I have to hear your place in the world. I have to hear your perspective in the world. I have to be able to hear from that place what you are seeing. And to be able to kind of open up to that, even if that is painful for me to hear. Because if I can't do that, then I'm, I actually don't, in, in some ways I don't really understand how to engage an ethical life. It's morality on my terms. And ethics is never on my terms, kind of by definition. It's not on my terms. And so the, 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 the interconnection, I see the person who is reflecting back to me something, but if their voice isn't included, <laughs> then I can get stuck in my own world. Right? If I have an experience of you and I'm paying attention, it's still my experience of you. And even if your voice is included, it's my experience of your voice. But the more information that is coming that we're able to bring forward for each other, the more we can actually be accountable to each other. I want to learn how to be accountable to the precepts. I want to learn how to be accountable to the tradition. I want to be the, the wisdom tradition. I want to learn how to be accountable to compassion. I want to learn how to be accountable to each of you. I want to learn how to be accountable to Sangha. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we want to run out the back door. So, the, so this, these three ways 
how they connect to, at least for me in feeling into this, how they connect to the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. I feel it's, in my own experience of myself, and I am still working with this, and probably will till I die, um, I actually have real difficulty with discernment in both the first and the second pure precept if I am completely burnt out if I am exhausted, if my mind isn't refreshed, if I am just working and working and working and working and there's this kind of depletion that sets in and then my moral universe starts to constrict into something that is about survival, actually, and and a fairly reactive form of it. And at that moment, if we're living into the second pure precept of what is good, doing what is good, the first thing that's necessary oftentimes in that situation, the most moral thing to do in that moment is rest so that there's something available again. Now, we may not have the, the ability to rest in that situation because there are duties, there are requirements, we're trying to survive, things are going on that we have to keep going. People are living very different lives in what is available to them in terms of rest. And what kind of rest is available? I see people on the train all the time that I can tell that that time on the train is one of the few times in the day they get to rest. And they use it, right? They just, and they are fully resting on that train. And my heart feels for them because I have a sense like, oh, this is, your t- this is your moment in the whole day where you get to just let things go quiet. But rest, uh, you know, much will be said by, by about this, I think, over the next few months. But the one thing that I, I think I want to talk about where I feel like rest is, lines up with the ethical and the moral in a deep way is rest is not possible if it is framed individually. We have this kind of way of relating to rest right now that I feel is very capitalist. We're individuals, we produce a bunch, and then when we get tired, we crash and we build up energy so that we can produce a bunch again. Right? And there's really only one aim in that, which is to produce a bunch. And rest isn't its own aim. It's a kind of thing that gets folded into producing. And I'm responsible for 
managing that process well so that I can stay in that loop. Which is exhausting in and of itself, that I even have to think that way. That I have to think about my body and my heart and mind as a thing, and, and believe me, I, <laughs> it is my karmic pattern, that I, it's exhausting to think in, in a way where I'm treating my body, heart, and mind as something that needs to be managed so that it can do. As opposed to being life. So this word rest, I learned, is connected to the Gothic word rasta, originally. There's two rests. There's the rest that we're talking about, and then there's the rest as a remainder, like leave the rest there. Apparently, the leave the rest there has a different, that's French. Um, but this Gothic word rasta was associated with um, a moment in the journey when you stop. It was associated with journey. Moment in the journey when you stop. There's got to be a moment in the journey when you and, and there's some speculation it had to do with when these communities were nomadic. And so there's a moment where you stop. And you have to rest in order to stay on the journey. But we have to kind of do that together. And so this is where I, th I feel, so let's take Sangha for a minute as an example. If, if we're um, a Sangha, for anyone to rest, other people have to fill in. Rest re requires each other. And also, it requires us to have a sane relationship, to pull out of productive mind completely, and have a sane relationship to what it is to be in community. And what is it to be in community? It's to be in community like doing more things, Um, not that there aren't things that need to be done, but doing more things. Or at first, maybe before we move in that direction, we first figure out how it is to actually be in community before it becomes a community that's doing a bunch of things. And to be in community in a way that I care about the way I am showing up, both in terms of engaging my own sense of balance and rest and being engaged, but also attending to others, which means that I need to kind of be paying attention to mine to be able to pay attention to others. For example, if I, am, um, if I need rest and then I watch three hours of Netflix, which actually doesn't restore me, it's just a kind of this almost falling over that happens, but I don't feel restored, then the next day I'm not available for myself or for other people in a certain way. Right? Not that our rest should be about being available for other people, because we can get in a weird trap there too. We can get very productive-oriented and martyr-oriented around that way of framing things. But the reality is, is that our rest is interwoven with everyone else's rest. That's just the reality of it. It's not even something we get to choose. 
If I don't learn to do that, Laura pays for it and has many times. For those who don't know, Laura and I are married. <laughs> um, and so my rest is, is, is because Laura pays for it. My, and it took me so long to learn this, I can't even tell you. I'm saying this with fresh, a very fresh knowing. Um, my rest is a moral commitment to everyone else. Ensuring my rest is a moral commitment to everyone else. And rest doesn't necessarily look like sleep or doing nothing. We have to understand the way that each one of us um, expels, you know, exhaust, right? Exhaust means the host or the spirit has been thrown out of the body. So what is the, um, what throws our spirit out of the body? And then what is necessary to encourage it to come back? What are the things we're not doing in the day? What are the rituals we're not doing in the day? Or what are the rituals we are doing in the day that exhaust us or don't? So we have to pay attention to all of that. We have to get very, very discerning and clear on what nurtures us. I think this in and of itself is heroic and difficult. Right, to get very clear, drop all the stories about what's good and bad. What's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing to do? Because some of the things that we believe are good are we're doing in a way that is um, destructive. And so in some ways, we have to set the good aside for a moment and ask, what is caring for me and others? And then we can bring the good back. <laughs> Maybe we can bring it back, and it's functioning in a different context than I'm just doing the good, 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 till I'm dead. Because we all will fall at some point if that's the way we do it. We just eventually cave. Because we're vulnerable, hungry, tired, sweet, sensitive little bodies that need to be held by other bodies. And so that being vulnerable to that connection and being vulnerable to that care and being vulnerable to the care of others, that's karuna, that's compassion, and that is where prajna comes from. That is the, where the wisdom of life comes from. It comes from that place. And then we can live for... Um, 
the benefit of all beings because we're actually connected to all beings. It's very hard for me to live for your benefit if I can't, if I'm not, if I don't have a sense of being present with you and connected with you. Then I'm living for my idea of what is beneficial to you, which that usually is a mess. So for us as a sangha, to in this in this um, next few months to really explore what it is for rest, restoration, care, accountability to each other, all these spaces of understanding and interest that is not about doing nothing, but about bringing nourishment back into the places that, where it's been evacuated. So that we can respond to a world that is in real crisis right now. And that crisis is a journey, right? That crisis is a journey. And it's going to be a journey for a while. I think we all know this. I think we're all having to transition as hearts, bodies, and minds into a world that is going to be in crisis for a little while. And we don't see the end of it. And so there's no way that we're going to be able to do that if we are not supporting each other and figuring out how to be restored, refreshed in the process of responding to it, because what will happen is we'll give up, we'll fall over. And Sangha is the community that either supports us in not falling over or is there when we do. At least that's the hope. So just to encourage us all to really feel into what is rest, restoration. What is our moral place in this? What is our moral place or our moral commitment to each other, to each body here? Not each person even, because... I don't know who you all are. Not in some final way. Thank you. May our intentions equally penetrate Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.